Shit Platypus Says, Episode 25. rounds on twitter and it's a political alignment chart meme you mean the one with ephraim on it <laughs> yeah frank carlback <laughs> is the president of the platypus affiliated society and he's been hand-drawn and features on on a meme i mean it could be ephraim it could be you know it could be other people somebody said it looked like stefan but it's it's you know it is like one of the ones that doesn't look super creepy i guess well somebody noted that it's the one of the best looking drawings on the chart i don't know the cute little dsa looks uh she looks sad and and adorable so this is this political alignment chart you guys probably know it it's like left right and then the top is authoritarian and the bottom is anti-authoritarian. So Platypus is at the extreme left and just one notch down from the most authoritarian. So at the very top is the Twitter tanky. And then under the Twitter tanky it says, what do you mean you don't believe Comrade Stalin was infallible? (laughs) And the the Twitter tanky is crying. But so ours, we are called the book club leftists. And in, in our little box it says, Want to come to my platypus meeting? We're discussing how the founding fathers really were heroes. <laughs> That's right. Oh, by the way, uh, happy Memorial Day for the American listeners. Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. I can wish you a happy Memorial Day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Memorial Day was uh, celebrated by the freed slaves just, just a month after the Confederacy was defeated. And uh, it, was, it was in the unmarked graves of Union soldiers Long live Abraham Lincoln, finish the American Revolution. So that's accurate, I would say. Yeah, that's what I thought when I read it. But I, I do have to criticize the title, which is The Book Club Leftist. The Book Club in, Leftist. We're not just a, a book club. We do have a reading group, but we also have public fora. Um, we host panel events. We have like a more informal coffee break. Uh, we're all over the world, get involved. The aim of Platypus, the task of Platypus, is to destroy the ideological obstacles on the, on the left, the obstacles to, to thinking. So we're not just a yeah. We're not just a group of book club leftists. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason why um, that is there is because we're we're seen as like the armchair Marxists, right? Mm. Like that's like the people that are demanding action. You know, the ones that are like, you can only do your thinking if it leads to an action. Mm-hmm. And what is this thinking for its own sake? What is this philosophical abstract garbage? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, what those people end up doing is um, leading people into the Labour Party or the Democratic Party or what may have you. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's this kind of fundamental irreconcilability, we would argue, between the task of socialism and leading people into pseudo-activity, as Adorno would put it. And I think that there is this resistance to the mission of Platypus, which is education, educating a new generation of potential socialists. And that education is absolutely necessary. But of course, the left has forgotten that the Socialist Party, let's say the German SPD, right, used to do this, used to teach people that Uh the party was responsible for 
for teaching the history of the left, and but the left doesn't do that anymore. It just tells people to vote for Joe Biden, like Zizek. Apparently Zizek is uh, telling the kids to vote for Joe Biden. So that's what it leads to, the action. I mean, it's, it's been said before that optimistically, um, Platypus would be a pre-political project. Mm-hmm. Well, at least we're not the DSR. <laughs> Uh, she's got cute makeup. She's got that kind of blusher thing across the nose that really makes her look sniffly. Yeah, she's like a little e-girl, you know? She's like a little e-girl on TikTok. Uh-huh. And she says, I'm feeling kind of sad and ugly. Let's vote for the social democrat and see if we can get socialism out of it. Like, don't worry. She looks concerned, you know? She's like, I don't know what else to do, you know? Like, I want to invite her to a platypus reading group. I'd be like, just, just come on, girl. Like, don't. <laughs> don't vote for joe biden come learn about socialism <laughs> um yeah the internet left is out of control back to the the books and the history yeah back to the founding fathers i guess this would be a good opportunity to plug the fact that platypus is going to be doing a public lecture series on the legacy of the american revolution and so we know out there that none of the leftists are teaching you about the american revolution so if you are curious about that you should you should tune in you should tune in on that i'm excited to tune into this actually uh all right we're leaving the memes behind cool i hope you enjoy the episode Hello and welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. My name is Pamela Nogales. This is a new members episode featuring the most recent additions to the platypus-affiliated society in the United States, Germany, and Denmark. We have two segments for you today. In the first, my co-host Sophia Freeman and I ring up our new member, Carson Wright, at the Oregon State University chapter. We chat about Planet of the Humans, a new documentary produced by Michael Moore, which takes a harsh look at green technology and the pitfalls of the environmental left. We reflect on the technocratic impulses of the climate left today and discuss Carson's recent interview with the environmental activist Derek Jensen, published in the April issue of the Platypus Review. The interview will be linked in the episode description. In the second segment, Sophia and I talk with new members in chapters around the globe to ask them about their encounters with the left before platypus, their experience as new members, and their thoughts on hosting the conversation on the left. We are joined by Lisa Müller at Leipzig University in Germany, Rana Urek at Columbia University in New York, Osiris Crutchfield at Virginia Commonwealth University, and Francisco Sanchez Acosta at Aarhus University in Denmark. If you want to learn more about Platypus and get involved, read the Platypus Review, or join the American Revolution Lectures online, visit us on Facebook under the Platypus Affiliated Society, or visit platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917. As always, if you like the podcast, share it, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can find us. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. 
Hey, how's it going? Hey, good. So we have Carson right with us today. Carson, could you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm a platypus member here in Corvallis, Oregon. I've been going to the reading group at the Oregon State University about a year and a half. Um, mm -hmm. I've been really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. So I thought that we'd have you on because Sophia and I were trying to chat about this new documentary called Planet of the Humans, produced by Michael Moore. We were chatting and we felt like we didn't know enough and we found some really lame critiques online. And so we thought that we'd bring you up and, and chat yeah. with you about it and see what, see what you thought. Did you seek it out and watch it before we suggested it? Or? I, I, I did. And I've got to say, I, I really struggled to get through it. It was one of those that I had to kind of mm -hmm. watch a, a few minutes of and, and then pause and then keep going. And then, and yeah, I, I think it does present a very compelling kind of common sense argument. And it's one that I believed for a long time. And some of the, the claims made in the film are correct. I think burning biomass to generate energy is, of course, condemned even by mainstream environmentalists now. Um, that's pretty inarguable. Same, same with corn-based ethanol. I, I think most um, people who support green technology and renewable energy would probably uh, have their own criticisms. Uh, in fact, probably share many of Jeff Gibbs' criticisms that he expresses in the, in the film of those technologies. I think the problem is, uh, you know, again, what's brought up in the critiques of the film uh, are largely correct. You know, the footage is quite old. A lot of the technologies that are presented in the film were, um, are now much more mature and much more efficient, uh, you know, achieve the aims of renewable technology much better than they did when Gibbs investigated them. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but the footage is presented as if these were the most cutting edge, mature versions of these technologies. And I, I think that's very manipulative. There's this kind of like in the movie showing we're saying the green movement is kind of being used by the big banks and the oil representatives who have found a way to kind of rebrand themselves as being so-called green. And mm -hmm. the claim mm -hmm. is over like who's using whom, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the key moments is this the Obama moment and the promise for the Green New Deal in the United States and this this massive uh, influx of money into what's supposed to be this new chapter mm -hmm. in technology and Al Gore. I mean, the film makes you feel as if, you know, if you were for the environment, you've been duped by these people, mm -hmm. right? And so you thought that you were doing good, but in fact, you're being used by these capitalist politicians that don't really care about nature. Right. And I, I think that's, it's kind of naive in a way, I think. Part of me suspects that, like Gibbs's generation of environmentalists, and in you know they pass this on to millennials too. They believe that like green tech would. I think they just had this kind of localist fantasy of, you know, like these are people who grew up in the '50s and '60s, became environmentalists, you know, in the '70s and '80s when they were adults, and I think they thought it would be people building solar panels. I don't know, like in the back of a bike shop, you know, and then people would come and take mm. them home and put them on the, mm. their garden shed next to their permaculture garden. And then, of course, it turned out that, yes, it, we live in a capitalist society. Of course, 
capitalists are going to be the ones developing and implementing these technologies. Of course, mm-hmm. it's going to be billionaire funded nonprofits. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's not a conspiracy. That's just how right. society adapts to necessary changes in technology and distribution in a, in a capitalist society. And instead of thinking about how that might pose a contradiction and how those contradictions might point beyond themselves, uh, I think Gibbs and, and a lot of I think the audience for this film just retreat into a kind of misanthropy. Well, I think that's sort of hinted at um, by some of the talking head interviews in the film and and even the title of the film itself. It's called Planet of the Humans, you know, which is like a take on Planet of the Apes. Uh, And in the original 1960 Chuck Heston Planet of the Apes, the apes are the bad guys. And so they're the these barbarians. Mm -hmm. And so film's almost like saying like that's what we are we're this bad species we're like bacteria in a petri dish who have kind of overgrown their medium and are consuming too much and reproducing too much Mm -hmm. and we need to be controlled and i don't think the film even has very much hope that we will be controlled for example through policy or politics i think the film uh this is simply kind of a primal scream you know doom saying about how we consume too much, we reproduce too much, we're a bad species, and the Earth's going to punish us. There are these interviews at one point, probably towards the second half, where people say things like, we need to face our own mortality, and this is the problem, that we've not accepted this, that there is this delusion of mastery, that that's the problem of humanity. And I think that's what you're calling this retreat into misanthropy, right? This kind of self-hatred of human potential. And I agree with what you said about, like, what else do you think, who else was going to implement change if not the character masks of capital, right? Like, that is where human potentiality lies. How, how else were you going to transform civilization if not through capital and so then they have to condemn the entire species as somehow rotten in the film they kind of they really like pull out all the stops to criticize like al gore Mm -hmm. bill mckibben van jones um but notably they don't touch on um greta thunberg and then I've had some people, like Carson, you mentioned to me like, before we were recording that this might be because they, the footage is so old and they just hadn't included her yet because this hadn't kicked off. Um, but then I was thinking, like, the way that the film ends, um, it, it ends with lines like, billionaires are not our friends, less must be the new more. Awareness alone can begin to create the transformation. Um, and infinite growth on a finite mm. planet is suicide. Um, human growth that must be sustainable and I, I was thinking that they kind of didn't want to rain on Greta's like parade her kind of criticisms and the kind of the tone that the film ended on I thought kind of like shared something in terms of like the humans are, are like the, the cancer of the earth or something and so I thought that that was a choice decision on their part there was a notable absence of um, Greta Thunberg. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of overlap. It makes me wonder, I don't know really if I have an answer to this, but it makes me wonder if there is something to the moment of Greta Thunberg and the, and the fact that this film is having a moment as well. If this film had come out in 2016, uh, or even a few months ago before the coronavirus, would it have been as popular? Would it have 8 million views on YouTube? I, I don't know. I wonder if there's something about the Trump Brexit moment that is causing people to feel especially apocalyptic. And so they're they're feeling like there's no political solution, that 
uh, there's no way out really um, through society. I mean, maybe though there's another part of it that is a bit redeemable, which is that there's this disenchantment with the technocratic solution that the film presents, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, Al Gore, etc. all these managers of green capital, they've crunched the numbers and supposedly they're doing good. And as it turns out, they got it wrong. And in that sense, it's a very post-Trump kind of realization is the exhaustion of neoliberalism. The problem is that because there's no socialist left, then it's somehow internalized as like the cancer of the species or something. Like it turns back on itself and then it goes into this bullshit mm. about facing mm. your own mortality when it becomes extremely pessimistic as opposed to recognizing the potential of capital and transforming like all of human history on a different basis, it rejects this altogether. I wanted to ask you, you like talked about Gibbs as being a person of the 70s and 80s, and how did they square the circle? How did they understand the problem of capitalism that if they wanted change and if they wanted better technologies, right, that in order for these technologies to reach the mass public, they would have to do it through the global system of capital. Did they approach that problem? Like, how did they make sense of that problem? My suspicion or my theory, I guess, on this is that, so environmentalism has always had a um, kind of technocratic element to it. I think uh, if you look at early Silicon Valley, a lot of you know ecological concepts were very prevalent in that era of uh, the early internet and, and cybernetics. The idea of the computer network as opposed to like a single mainframe computer was drawn from this idea that in nature is a uh, self-regulating, self-balancing, perfectly harmonious system. Equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Equilibrium, exactly. And so I think political ideology that followed from that was that we don't really have to deal with things politically. Mm -hmm. If we just find a way to live in balance and equilibrium with each other and with nature and with technology, that we won't need any kind of authority in society. We won't need any kind of, we don't have to work through things politically anymore. We're just these nodes in a system that are all working to kind of maintain this homeostasis, so. You, you mentioned the, um, the Adam Curtis film. Mm -hmm. The film is called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, which is the title of a, uh, a poem that, that was written, uh, I can't recall the, the author, but um, you know, he was a, um, living in San Francisco in the 70s and kind of walked around and like handed this poem out on, on street corners. And uh, the poem is all about this fantasy of a, a merger of machines and nature and humanity into this kind of perfect harmonious system. Mm -hmm. how a computer network, a forest, human society, they can all sort of coexist without the need for any kind of like authority and, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and I guess self-conscious direction of society. So it's a, a quote from it. I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature return to our mammal brothers and sisters and watched over by machines of love and grace. The author is Richard Brodigan. So if I remember the Curtis correctly, like there's this implication that 
the way that uh, these environmental leftists, and I guess he's really talking about more of like the kind of technocratic generation that comes from the new left. So it's like the post new left technocrats that they believed that it was all about restoring a certain balance and that you could do that through like technical calculation and that therefore you didn't have to deal with the problem of authoritarianism because you could just like restore harmony through technology or something. And now we're seeing that in fact, that approach in fact demands these technocrats who then are the guardians of the supposed harmony, right? Like the, the overseers of the technological implementations or something. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's kind of always been this notion of technocrats man, uh, overseeing and managing society. You know, even at the time, it, you have uh, groups like the Club of Rome, which is mentioned in, in the film. Uh, I mean, these were kind of government, corporate think tanks that were trying to deal with this incredibly devastating crisis of environmental collapse that people were dealing with in the 70s that uh, was real. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, conclusion was that these problems are so huge that we can't really leave anything to chance. We have to manage society across cultural boundaries, across borders in a self-balancing, self-correcting way. We can't leave it up to politics mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And at the time, uh, there's actually footage of these protests where the new leftists of the, of the time were critical of this and they still saw the need for politics. But I think as time went on, I think that resistance faded away. And so, and I think this is evident with Greta Thunberg and with, for example, the, here in the United States, the Sunrise Movement. Um, you have this renewed call for technocrats to step in, for the state to step in and manage the problem of climate mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. Is there a critique of this technocratic revival in someone like Greta? Uh, is there, are there like anarchists, for example, that have a critique of this, this tack in the environmental movement? I think there are, but it, it the way those discontents are, are manifested are kind of strange, I think. So for example, we, Anthony and I interviewed the environmental philosopher and writer, Derek Jensen, for the Platypus mm -hmm. Review. Mm -hmm. And I think what comes through in that interview is that there's a admission that there's really no opportunity for uh, politics to step in and manage this crisis. So if you think of the mm -hmm. Lenin quote, we, we, we've all heard this quote, politics begin where the masses are, uh, not where there are thousands, but where there are millions. That is where serious politics begin. And so, you know, if it's true, like where, where are the masses going to come for environmental politics? You know, if you're telling people you need to, need to have austerity imposed, we need to take away your, your fossil fuel burning cars, you need to eat less meat, consume less, have fewer children. Where is that which is discontent going to be generated from within capitalism? I think we just did um, Walter Benjamin in the mm. reading group last week. Um, we read on the concept of history, and he's critiquing this kind of a faith in progress um, that he's seeing like on the left, uh, that it's got a kind of hidden theology to it. 
and that we can kind of we're, we're on our way to kind of like um happiness and that actually like our happiness has nothing to do with the task of freedom but the freedom's not about happiness and then somebody like Derek Jensen or um or even Greta Thunberg are attempting to kind of end human suffering um and to end the human race and maybe that's like good maybe but it's based on the conception of the good but not as in the good is the opposite of suffering but not the task of freedom, freedom. Mm-hmm. I remember going to these like environmental conferences like in Eugene, Oregon, and there'd always be, um, you know, lots of people tabling and handing out flyers and things. And there were always these every year there were these people there were with the um, what's called the voluntary human extinction movement. Yikes. <laughs> have, you, have you heard of this? Uh, no. So they 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 their um, program is that we should voluntarily bring the human population to zero by bringing reproduction to zero so uh, nobody's having any more children and we just kind of manage the decline of the human population and no one will suffer anymore and no one will suffer anymore or be born into suffering um yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's like a management of suffering which skirts like around you know the the Marx question and capital. And mm-hmm. one of the things that came up in the interview, one of the things that Derek Jensen says that he understands is that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. He presents this as a profound recognition and that insofar as that's the conception of the human species, that it's always doomed. You can argue that capital does have infinite potentiality, human emancipation. There's always that metaphor of deer on an island and they overshoot their carrying capacity because they consume too much and reproduce too much and then there's no more grass uh, and forbs for them to eat and they all die but you know humans we're not we're not deer on an island we're not bacteria in a petri dish we can radically we have the potential to radically alter how we live and how how we how our society creates and appropriates from nature the things we need mm-hmm. to survive we have like that self-consciousness that mm-hmm. I think was a big part of the socialist project uh, in the past. And it seems like, and, and in a way, I think a lot of the things that Jensen says uh, make a lot of sense that it's true there will, there will never be a, a mass base for environmentalism. But the, you have to consider what he's saying in the context of the death of the left and how nobody in society is expressing the potential for radical self-conscious change. Without a vibrant left in this context where the left is dead, it's understandable that you would see human civilization, you know, you would see history, uh, and I think Derek would maybe exclude prehistory, but you can see history would appear as just this one continuous unbroken chain of death, destruction, degradation, slavery, and the whole thing is just irredeemable. Because without anyone expressing a potential that the potential for, you know, redeeming this history, it would seem that it is, in fact, irredeemable. Mm-hmm. How would you outline um, his idea of humanity's future? Ideally? Ideally. What's his vision of the emancipated future? As in, like, what does he want? I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think his optimistic future is that small groups of kind of militant environmentalists go out and basically obstruct the continued destruction of the environment through any means necessary, whether that's 
sabotage or you know mass blockades and that kind of thing. And that's kind of helping along the inevitable collapse of civilization that he, th he believes that we are currently witnessing. And then after civilization collapses, people will return to a kind of more primitive way of life. So living basically within the ecological limits of the local land where they are, where they're living. So, and then in order to prevent another rise of these overconsumptive, destructive cultures, there would be social norms in place where people would essentially be any culture that demonstrated, you know, a propensity for exploitation and overconsumption or um, exceeded the boundaries of the natural world would, you know, be subject to uh, their own sort of mini collapse. So everything, again, it's that idea that everything would sort of self-regulate. It would, it would balance itself through like kind of like social norms or just like mm -hmm. ecological limits. One of the um, articles that was part of the same issue was a response by Brian Tokar. Mm -hmm. And he put some of these things into the history of the left. He says that he found that Jensen was kind of moving away from Bookchin's uh, 1982 thesis in his The Ecology of Freedom, where he argues there's a, there's a tension, a dialectical tension between the historical legacy of domination and freedom, um, and maybe some of the things that we've been talking about, capital as potential, but capital is also destructive of human potential, and moves towards a more rejection of civilization, a way of seeing capitalism as a mere extension of a kind of bad human nature and I wonder what what happened in the intervening years or you know what was the how was this lost how was this dialectical tension of the possibility and problem of capital from 1982 from Bookchin to where we are now um, with Jensen I was just curious what you think about this discontinuity I don't think Derek would really, he definitely rejects the label of anarchist. So he doesn't see himself as an anarchist. Mm -hmm. I think that for him, anarchism and by, to some extent, freedom itself is kind of um, just ultimately inevitably based on some kind of violation that in order to realize freedom, it would mean sort of like defying boundaries. So I'm not sure we necessarily got uh, an answer from him in the interview on that question, on the question of freedom. We didn't really get an answer for it in the mm -hmm. panel that we hosted, Freedom in the Anthropocene, either. That's somewhat of an open question what the conception of freedom is. And I think part of the problem is that seeming immediacy of the ecological crisis with climate change makes it easy for them to kind of elide the question of, of freedom in history. And so it, it's not really addressed. And to the extent that it is addressed, it's not clear to me that they would consider it necessarily a desirable basis for revolutionary politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, he has this bit, of course, at the end with the salmon. And it's almost like the, the freedom that is created there is a kind of freedom mm -hmm. from humanity. Like, you know, the, the mm -hmm. salmon can roam free. And that's where I'm, you know, like, what is the object that is being transformed then? Is it, 
you know, somehow like nature outside of the human or is it still the human? And so he sort of loses me because I still wanted to be the human. I still want to, with other people who are on the left, work on the possibility of the transformation of the human species. And so once that's out the window, then I wonder what we're doing. Do you know um, our unhappiness comes from our freedom um, ever since... Eve ate the apple um, in the garden from the garden of knowledge. Are you quoting? Are you quoting things? Yeah. Well, Chris Kuchan said that. So, <laughs> oh. as in, like this is a Nietzsche point, right? That one can look at the contentness of um, of animals that don't have the task. They're not. They don't have to suffer um, with the weight of history. That's right. That the creatures, you know, don't don't have the burden of freedom, and that given the weight of the defeat of freedom that we carry, it sure seems like a happiness of some sort Mm -hmm. that escapes us. Yeah. On that note, thank you for joining us. Oh, absolutely. It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Cool. I think this was a good Good. conversation. Good. Yeah. Uh, We got pretty heady there. We did. (laughs) See you. Bye, Carson. Bye, Carson. Bye. So we're here with some of our newer members who are based geographically all around the world. And we thought we'd catch up with them and see what's going on and how they came to Platypus and how they're finding the project so far. So guys, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Lisa. I'm from the Leipzig chapter. And I'm, I came to Platypus and I would say 2018. Uh, my name is Osiris Crutchfield. I was recruited at the UVA uh, section of Platypus. Uh, I have recently moved to Richmond and I run the Richmond Virginia Commonwealth University Platypus reading group with my buddy Sebastian. Uh, Rana? So I'm from the New York chapter. I'm a fairly recent recruit. I joined at the end of uh, 2019, right at the beginning of the Marxist reading group. So it was a good time to join in. Hi, this is Francisco. I'm Argentinian and I'm part of the Danish chapter in Arus. So so how did you guys come to Platypus? Well, I would say it was kind of a coincidence that I came to Platypus. I recognized um, one of these Facebook events. The first reading group session I visited was um, about class consciousness, the Lukács session, and I really couldn't catch any word there, but I was interested in left theory. I didn't know anybody from Platypus before I came there, but I was interested in theory because I really had the impulse to do something, I would say, but I didn't want to do something without knowing what I do and So I really was interested in kind of intellectual input. I can reflect upon that. It was, you know, very recent. Um, A friend of mine actually recommended me to join Platypus. By the way, he's not 
involved with Platypus, but we were just having a chat and then he just mentioned that I might like this reading group. He only knew the reading group. So I one day joined and it was, I think, like right at the beginning of the uh, reading group sequence. The first text I read was Kolakowski. So I was actually very much impressed by how precise the members were about, you know, providing an education about a historical understanding. And I, the moment I knew about like the pedagogue's calls and the time invested in teaching these material, I was impressed and I thought this was a serious project. I found an event on Facebook reading about Adam Smith and I had already read The Wealth of Nations and I was really also impressed or I was surprised in a really good way of this reading group that would was connecting all the bits of information that I had in one coherent line. I remember the, the very first time I went to the reading group, I was uh, not convinced or I, I was suspicious because I, I was, let's say, aware enough to be suspicious of Marxist groups, but he turned out to be really, really great. He's really, really good. So you're, yeah, so you're touching on like a suspiciousness and you're all kind of giving Platypus praise for its like thoroughness as an educational project, which maybe like that thoroughness is, is lacking on the left but what are like some like difficulties that you've come up against if you have or what's been like striking or kind of like profound about if you've had any experiences like that through platypus i would say at uva i kind of got tricked into joining platypus who tricked you in a way um, right here. just by the syllabus <laughs> the syllabus tricked me uh, well marxism tricked me but um so i my marxist background was basically all internet groups so it's very third worldist in a way i'm walking around campus and i see a flyer and i'm like oh this is like a picture of lennon on it and i get there and i'm looking at the reading and we're reading like these 17th 18th century liberals like constant i'm like what does he have to do with marxism and i read it anyway and i go and i see oh spencer leonard was running the reading group and so I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go in and introduce myself and see what this is about. I don't know, it's just like, it, it really, the way he elaborates on like history and philosophy and all that stuff, it really made much more sense than what I've been used to and what I've been taught. And that's what kept me coming back was like the, like um, what Francisco said, was about the coherentness of it. It's not just about like, you know, what other groups think about, but it's like a whole spectrum of things. It's a, it's a much bigger picture. What you're talking about in terms of a coherence is it like a perspective on history, or what do you mean? I would say it's I would say it's history. I think um, it's a way of looking at things that is just not so black and white, and that it's there's some nuance to it, and like everything leads up to a certain point. And I don't think it's just a one-off. It wasn't just an accident. Platypus, uh, unlike other leftist groups that I've you know attended or at least heard about in the campus. It's less like a therapy group, whereas, you know, most other leftist groups come together and they talk about things, but it's just a, you know, rant. They, they talk about things that upset them and then they leave the meeting in a happy or at least more relaxed state. Whereas with Platypus, I'm not, you know, like trying to imply that it's 
depressing or melancholic, but at least you don't live uh, the meeting with a you know blissful state. You just go there, think about things, and then go back to your life. Still now, like now I do this as well. I leave Platypus meetings thinking, fuck, I don't know anything. Or like, I guess I become more and more confident in my understanding, but it still kind of always exposes like a lack. And that through that, that like lack, I, I want to, to learn, learn more and more. I would say um, with like kind of the therapy group, I would say Spencer is the exact opposite of like a therapy group. Maybe to put some meat on this, like in terms of like finding a moment that you took back with you um, in terms of not being a therapy session, right? And like in terms of Sophia's anecdote about walking out of a reading group meeting feeling feeling like there's so much more. Um, I'm curious if you guys have an experience with a text or with a session in the reading group that was like, what just happened? Well, I wouldn't say that... It was a situation in the reading group, but when we go out and do teach-ins, um, this is kind of a weird experience where all the left groups come together and listen to the teach-ins that Platypus is doing. And I had one about Stalinism in Leipzig. And this was really kind of a weird, weird experience. And as I said before, when I came to Platypus, I... From the standpoint I have today, I have to say that I really was looking for an, for an answer to my impulse of doing something. But when I did this teaching and had the audience in front of me, I really felt the leftist dead that this sentence is real. <laughs> and I would say that reading all these um, sources um, is also kind of important to do, to have a framework, to discipline yourself every day and every week again, to learn what these people said and really read the primary readings, really read the original. Maybe the readings that left me more shocked or that it was mind-blowing is uh, Lukács, History and Class Consciousness. Yeah, it really makes you want to grab my friends and guys, you have to read this. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really important and it gives you an insight on reality or a way of seeing things that it was something yeah, new or that I wouldn't have come up with just by myself or even by reading it by myself without the, the group. Yeah, there's something about trying to understand like the text on their own terms in there kind of trying to paint this picture of this historical moment as well and situate things and give things a history, like give Adorno or the Frankfurt School a history, for instance, which academia just doesn't do, that kind of brings everything alive for me. I'm just wondering like, what concerns that like, you guys came to Plathbus with and what you see people that you're trying to recruit come to Plathbus with. Like, I'm assuming like a lot of them are like younger, like in their early 20s or they might be doing their undergraduate or their master's degree. What is it they want to know? I found it easier to attract debate members, especially in our chapter. I'm also from the debate club, so I have like personal ties as well. But at the same time, uh, people from that club actually want to get, you know, some um, argumentative points of all kinds of ideologies, so they're attracted naturally to come to this uh, orthodox Marxist intellectual circle and, you know, gain some of the points. But uh, it also happens to be the case that they sometimes stick around. 
one of my friends, uh, Adiba, is uh, one of the people that got through with the, most of the syllabus. And I think there is something good in, in trying to reach intellectual circles who are like all about a form of uh, argumentative competition, this like teaching about Marxism, a general teaching. And a lot of debate kids showed up and it was actually very interesting because they had this idea of a blueprint way to create socialism and they would always treat the question like a closed question and would ask us like step by step, what are you going to do, what's your plan? like a debate tournament and it was nice to break that understanding that they had i think people are intellectually interested i'm wondering if you have like a load of like extinction rebellion people coming to you like this kind of thing or people that are kind of malaise with like kind of rotten postmodernism that's being taught in the academy or anarchists we haven't actually had a lot of environmental Green Party interested type of people uh, join in Platypus. It's mostly been like philosophy majors, math majors, debate people, people who are uh, very interested in the intellectual exercise of uh, formulating thought itself. Mm-hmm. What about, I'm curious, in Leipzig? Like, where are the new people coming from since you guys, I'm sure, had... I know there's been like a renewed interest as a result of the conference there and... Are the people that are coming to Platypus people that were already on the left or are they new to the left? Some people come from the left. They have some influences of anti-Deutsch or um, kind of other groups, organizations they came in touch with. But um, I would say they are really coming out of the frustration with the education they get from universities and the frustration of the left by those who come from left organizations. Others want to find out what platypus is after the convention and the um, advertisement we had. But I think really the most people are looking for an intellectual input. When you say um, the intellectual part, like, you know, the sort of like the rigorous intellectual work of platypus. And we're talking a lot about the reading group and the sort of preparation that goes into that. Do you think that because you said that some people come out of frustration with the universities and their education and with what the left can educate them on. And so when people seek out platypus to get an education, what is it that they're missing? Yeah, I would say they are frustrated by the um, dishonesty they gave in representing totality. They have a sense of the one-sided part of education they get there and they know that this is not everything this is not the whole story i think they can find something yeah who can fill the gap there what impressed me in platypus was also that the syllabus is trying to represent something of totality, even if they have to admit that some questions remain unanswered. Yeah, kind of this education they get in universities is that there are no unanswered questions. Mm. Mm. And I think this is, this is the dishonesty they feel and this is why they are frustrated. Mm-hmm. Well, in Denmark, we're a relatively small group 
it's actually a quite random group that we have. I don't think there are two people from the same background. Victor is a professor in the University of Arus in anthropology. So maybe some come from... Mm -hmm. And do you get a sense that the people that go to the reading group have been exposed to left ideas before? At least here, yes. I think most, if not all of us, had already an interest in the left. And I think it was equally surprising to all of us to find such a intellectually determined group. I mean, we all had bits. We all had some type of theories in, in our heads. But it was not until we went through the reading reading group that things really began to make sense. And as I said before, to become coherent. Well, I would say that a lot of people at VCU have some conception of the left. It's a very, I would say, left-wing kind of college. It's very artsy. So I would say, yeah, they would have some kind of like DSA minimum background. I mean, I would say the biggest concern would be like that they don't have like a real conception of like what like an old leftist politics are, like the history of the left outside of, you know, like general, you know, memes or anything like that. What's an artsy DSA conception of the, the left? Uh, I would say like, you know, just like putting eat the rich in your Twitter bio or voting for Bernie Sanders. Asking for taxes on the on the wealthy or bigger welfare programs. I mean, I mean, those. I feel like that if that's the block, I think that people are kind of stuck at, especially right now. So I don't think they have the horizon of revolutionary politics. So uh, that would be bringing that history, that kind of load of history, back to the forefront, like the revolutionary standpoint of the proletariat. How did you like? What was the left for you guys before you before you came to Platypus? I already mentioned it. I played sports in college, so I didn't really have a chance to really delve into it. really took a lot of my time, so I didn't really have a chance to delve into leftism. Um, I was just kind of your typical Democrat. I didn't really do DSA. I basically just going to vote blue no matter who. But uh, when I eventually got hurt, uh, I tore my knee up pretty badly. I kind of started delving into more leftist politics. I sort of self-taught myself through like Reddit or podcasts, things like that. I would say like the left to me was revolutionary, anti-oppression, anti-American, anti-rich, wealthy people. I mean, it's just standard boilerplate stuff. Yeah. Did you come across like Maoists online? Yeah, Maoists, Solonists, okay. um, Chaos, Castroists, Ho Chi Minhists. Just you know. Anti-American slant, you know, how it goes. So you are part of the phenomena of an online educated leftist? Yep. I was all for it. I can agree with um, some of the sentiments that Osiris mentioned. Uh, you know, I'm from Turkey and uh, have lived in Turkey for the like, you know, first 18 years of my life. And the left that I saw in Turkey was very much, you know, orienting itself towards the question of imperialism. To be anti-American was equal to being anti-imperialist. And I think Eren has changed a lot of my understanding of imperialism. I think Lenin's uh, readings on imperialism was very good uh, for me to think about some of the things that I have been you know, positioned to think from the Stalinist parties that I came across in Turkey, where you know, there still exists historical ties and traditions that they have inherited from like 
even the starting of 1920s, like these parties claim to be some historical inheritor of a long-existing socialist party. And when they tell you um, certain things in a certain worldview, you tend to believe it more than, let's say, the DSA in the left, uh, in the USA. Because, you know, that's it's, it's easier to understand how DSA fails to grasp a question than to understand how a communist party in, in Turkey, which existed for a long time, fails to grasp a question. It, it has been very useful for me, you know, um, Platypus in that sense. I think I came, let's say, into the left, uh, mainly because of a professor I had in university. He was a very unorthodox professor. Uh, he called himself a Trotskyist, and he, he shook me in a way of making me realize how bad was the education I was getting. I was, I, I was studying economics in the University of Buenos Aires, and how was it possible that I was going to graduate with never having read Adam Smith or Marx? And I just tried to read as much as I could on my own. I, I didn't really participate too much on internet groups. But again, everything was in a way distorted. It, it's really not easy to grasp many of, of the concepts just by, by your own. Did you read Trotsky with him? No, not, not with him. No. No. Uh, no, no, it wasn't his main goal to teach us uh, Marxist mm -hmm. theory. I think this is a really difficult question. I would say I came to the left because of a good friend of mine. She gave me some texts of Engels and Marx and said, read this and then we can talk about it. But I, I really couldn't figure out what leftism means because they were so controversial and they were so diverse. Um, I couldn't find out what, what they really want. So when I finished university, she said, come on, go try feminism. <laughs> and I went to a feminist reading group and it was like the um, therapist session Rana mentioned before. And I didn't want it to be a victim. This wasn't the reality that I figured out for my life they were talking about. Yeah, this was kind of frustrating for me because um, they really didn't want to talk about history. And I didn't know where this was all coming from. And I wanted to know where this is coming from. Yeah, I think if I didn't f have found platypus, I would do nothing on the left. I would quit. <laughs> I was thinking that because we've spent so much time talking about the reading group as an intellectual practice, that we would talk about this mission of platypus, which is to host the conversation on the left. We've been talking so much about your need for platypus like through education. Like do you feel the task of of hosting the conversation on the left is it still foreign to you? Does it still feel sort of why are we doing this and or if if it doesn't or if or if you have any ideas about what kind of conversation we should be hosting? I would also like to hear that. I mean, I think the conversation on the left is important because if the left is dead, then it's, I wouldn't say it's our job to revive it, but it's their job to kind of talk ourselves through that symptomology that the left currently has. I, I would say that through my experience with running the reading group with Sebastian, I've kind of felt the weight of it a little bit. It's, it's, it's kind of like this daunting act to kind of, I don't I mean like, I, the one thing I kind of I've struggled with is like, what's the end game? 
with platypus? Like, when's, when do we decide, okay, like, we're done? And it's like, well, I guess when we find the next Lenin, that's when we, we call it. So, I don't know. I think, for me, maybe that's where things begin to be a little bit more confusing. Because it is what to do, right? Uh, the, the question of practice. Yesterday, we, we held our first panel here in Arus. And I think it's maybe the, the closest or the only thing I've done besides the reading group of confronting the left with its history. It's, it's hard to tell. Was it a success? Uh, what, what was the, the value or what, what, uh, why was it worth it? What have we achieved by doing it? Those, those things are a little bit more unclear to me. Um, when the lockdowns are over, um, we plan to host a panel on what is capitalism, the same that was in Denmark. So yeah, I think this is this is an important question, and we have to make palpable what's missing um, in all the left conversations. And I think this is a good question to make this work. For me, um, I'm still not sure about the aim, final aim of, of platypus, whatever um, that may be. But I always like imagine this to be like a data uh, collecting project almost. We just uh, document everything we do. I can um, find files of like some teaching that happened years ago and listen to it. And I think it's a valuable archive. I mean, even if we don't know what it means quite yet, uh, we have this collection of things that someone can go through and, and find out some other day. So I, I find it reassuring to have this uh, archive. Yeah, that's quite important. We've been talking about that lately, sort of taking stock of our archive. And part of the mission of Platypus in the second decade of Platypus is to figure out how to curate that archive so that it can speak to the present needs. And what that means is our new members, right? Like how can we use the Platypus archive of the last 13 years to educate a new generation of members and you know how might we use it to continue to educate ourselves sophia what is the end game of platypus ideally it's like a, a pre-political project um optimistically uh, there might be a moment in time where platypus is no longer necessary and therefore it would no longer need to exist yeah, and I guess um, coming to the project like later on in its history, I think the I have a sense that the the kind of founding members had an idea that this would happen like sooner rather than later. Yeah, I I think that we as a founding generation of people that um, were part of the organization in its very beginnings as like a a reading group and then a forum and and then a newspaper thought that our mission was much shorter that as a result of trying to host the conversation on the left and creating a kind of historical consciousness of the left that we could bring about a kind of renewed interest in Marxism and socialism. And while we live in the world that is affected by platypus in a sense, um, the calls for Marxism and socialism are yet somehow part of the forgetting of Marxism and socialism. And so platypus remains necessary. 
but it is a question to work through and it's in part it's humbling to host the conversation on the left because we what we realize when we host a panel often is um how there are these sort of partial moments of truth in the event right but we we often say that the people in the audience should walk away with like the entire conversation not just with picking one person that they most agree with or something like this but rather you walk away with a sense that there's an absence of the left and that that in some ways like the important conversation always almost happens and it sort of eludes us yeah <laughs> we remain the organization that's going to ask these questions there's something very opaque about the panels i remember when like um lucy in london who started a chapter there got me to come to some of her panels before i was a member and i was just like what is going on here like there there is like there was no kind of like right answer on the panel and so i was like what is the point of this conversation i always found it very opaque um and it kind of took a while to to start to be able to kind of learn from the the panelists well, thank you for joining us, guys. I think that, you know, we've... It's it, it's an interesting mix of people. There is this, like, meme culture, Maoism, anti-imperialism. There's, like, the old Stalinist parties in Turkey that have this connection to the old left. There's the appearance of Trotskyism in Argentina and the intervention of your education in the university. And then there's the old, you know, the way in which Marx and Engels gets turned into like a pathway into feminism among uh, younger people these days. And they're all kind of represented on in our conversation today. So I think that's the, that covers a lot of ground. And self-help groups. And self-help yeah. groups. And that we're not. <laughs> that, that we're not, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> we're here to disturb you, yeah, right? We're here to be a little and, disturbing. And only if you can handle yeah. it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org. <laughs>